Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 19, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the book released in 2018, Spiritual Grit, and The Jesus-Centered Life, released uh, maybe the year before that. And then a couple years before that, I was the editor of the, at the time, the brand new, unprecedented, unique Bible called The Jesus-Centered Bible, which has been out for four or five years now. So today is our fifth episode in this series we're calling Fully Human. What we mean by that is that we know Jesus as fully God and fully human, but we tend to focus on his fully godness and not so much on his fully humanness. So we've been exploring how Jesus has modeled what it looks like to be fully human, that the fact that he's redeemed what it means to be human. So that's what we're exploring. We're in the fifth episode, and I think we're going to do one more after this in, in the series. And that's a good thing, because today, the Becky Nader was supposed to be here with me, but she is out of commission today. So she'll return next week. So that's good. We get one more uh, shot with the Becky Nader in this series on Fully Human. So today, we're going to consider how all four of these sort of love filters we've been using in this series, the love filters are Jesus telling the man who asked him, what's the highest commandment? What's the thing I should pay the most attention to? And Jesus responds by saying, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we're treating those four things as sort of filters to explore what it looks like to live a fully human life. So today we're going to combine all four filters and merge them all into one, bring them all into focus on one kind of sort of lifestyle habit that Jesus has modeled for us, and that is solo, solo living, meaning the practice of silence and solitude in Jesus' life and how that translates into a life that feels comfortable being solo. Soloness of Jesus is actually a major theme in what we know about the patterns of his life. There are at least three dozen references in the Gospels to Jesus going away to be alone, retreating to be alone, living solo. Now, obviously, the things that we tend to study, the things that we tend to draw our own insights and our own practical ways of living from our, the ways that he encountered people, the ways that he engaged people. But this theme of him retreating to be alone, it happens so often, and I think it's good for us to slow down and pay attention to what was happening around him at the time that he retreated and at the time that he lived solo. So this habit of silence and solitude in Jesus' life is kind of a, it's kind of, I guess you could call it an inward-focused habit, and it's fed by things that we treat as sort of compartments. It's fed by things such as study, where we pay attention to the truths about Jesus that are revealed in the Bible or revealed in maybe a book that we might read. So it's fed by study, it's fed by prayer, which is really how we converse or connect with the God we can't see. 
And it's fed by something I might call co-conspiratating. <laughs> I don't even think that's a word. But this life alone in quiet and solitude, it's during this time that plans and strategies and guidance and our path forward sort of coalesce. So that happens in this kind of solo time as well. And we do, by the way, we and I guess it was about a year ago now, my friend Michael Kiefer helped put together right these three uber practical little books called Help, How Do I Read the Bible? Help, How Do I Know God's Will? And Help, How Do I Pray? These three little books actually came out of, were birthed out of this very podcast because we did separate episodes on each three of those sort of spiritual practices, and they were quite popular. So that gave us an indication that there are a lot of people that were interested in, in sort of exploring these very basic things. And the thing that ties all three of these things together, really, is that all of them are most often done solo, in quiet and solitude. So we have these little guides that are the most practical I've ever seen for these three areas, reading the Bible, praying, finding uh, God's guidance in His will. So we'll put a link to all three of these little books you know, on our podcast page. And uh, if you're on our email list, which if you're you're not, you should beg us to be on our email list so that you can get all the latest updates and news about new releases of things and new things we're doing, make sure you're on that email list because we'll send you a, a an email that kind of profiles these three little books uh, in case you might be interested. They're really fuel for solo time. So I was thinking about this uh, prior to the episode today. Have you ever had somebody ask you, well, what historical person would you want to have lunch with if you could? I've had people ask me that often. Or what celebrity would you want to have lunch with if you could? But we never and can't really imagine that question leading to an answer that says, well, I'd like to have lunch alone. <laughs> if somebody answered that way, they would essentially be saying, I don't like people very much. But what if that was a legitimate answer? What if the question, who would you most enjoy spending uh, lunchtime with, what if he could legitimately answer, um, I think I'd like to have lunch alone sometimes, just to be my own company. And is that even possible for us to enjoy our own company so much that solo time looks really attractive to us? Well, for most of us, that's not our reality. Solo time for a lot of people is like purgatory time. It's not something we look forward to. We like to hang around friends who, are, who make for good company, but do we consider ourselves good company? Well, it's clear that Jesus, in the way that he lived his life, often went off alone because he enjoyed his own company. And, and of course, in the midst of that solo time, he was also reconnecting with the Spirit and the Father. So I guess you could say he wasn't truly alone, but there was something about separating yourself from other human contact that was very, very important to him. And he did it so often that we have to say that Jesus enjoyed the company of himself <laughs> in these solo times. And so let's explore this a little bit. We will—I've uh, kind of filtered through the Gospels to sort of pluck out all of the times that uh, and circumstances that Jesus went off to be alone. And it's fascinating uh, what surrounds those times he decided to do that. So we'll get to that in just a second. But um, I, I thought I'd track back to my own history of solo time in my life and the role that it's played in my life. Now, I have to preface this with by saying 
that if if I took uh, when I take a personality test, I I usually end up somewhere in the middle of the scale, but I, I but I lean toward introversion, and I know that I do that because when I'm when I've been with people in a social situation for an extended amount of time, I am sort of thirsty to be alone for a while. And that's a clear indicator that I lean more to introversion than extroversion. Extroverts um, are drained in the same way when they're separated from people. When they're alone, they feel drained. The, the energy that they usually gain from being around people isn't there. So, so I have to say, as a disclaimer up front, that I have more of a natural lean to solo time than maybe um, people who are uh, uh, energized by social environments. So that said, um, I've learned a lot about what it feels like, what it looks like, and what the benefits are from solo time. So um, a, a, uh, many years ago, I started going on a once-a-month, one-day silent retreat about an hour south of where I live, myself and a few other uh, men, and sometimes some women, would sort of caravan down together from our church leadership team, and we would talk along the way, but once we got to the retreat center we were going to, we went to our own assigned room, and we were quiet and didn't have any interaction with anyone else until we left at the end of the day, and then we sort of downloaded our experience on the way back. So on one of those trips down, we often had people that were new, that had never yet tried a one-day silent retreat. And my friend Bob Krulish, who organized these trips, curiously never told these people how to really prepare <laughs> for this day. Uh, so I often would hear them say, ask questions along the way, like, well, what is this place like, and what do you typically do on this? And I thought, oh, no, if they haven't prepared for this, this is going to be a long day. So one of those trips, I remember there was a guy I was sitting next to who clearly had no idea what he was getting into because... He had not brought with him any food for a lunch that day. He hadn't brought any books to read. He hadn't brought anything. He was just empty-handed. I think he was expecting that once he got to the retreat center, this was going to be some kind of guided retreat where there'd be somebody there who would be talking most of the time and kind of doing a day-long devotion or something like that. But there was no such guidance. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this guy is not used to being alone and quiet for a whole day, and he has nothing to engage with. What is this going to be like? So on the way back, you could see in his eyes, he was kind of like halfway traumatized by this entire day of quiet alone without anything to engage. Time kind of slows to a stop when you're in that situation. So he was simply shocked to spend that entire day in silence, one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. And, and I think in, on some level, the whole idea seemed sort of foreign alien, ludicrous to him. So I, I remember thinking, if you're going to go solo, especially if the context is a whole day, then you really need to think through what solo means for you and have a plan. So we'll get to that a little bit later as well. You know, and I know that in my the rhythm of my everyday life, sometimes my wife and daughters want to do something that I don't really want to be involved in, and they, like a couple of times, they've gone to see school plays, and I've said, I think I've seen enough high school plays. I think I've marked enough marks on my bedpost of having gone to high school plays for three hours on a Friday night. 
I think I want to sit this one out. So sometimes my wife and daughters would go to one and I would be, I was going to be home alone. And my daughter, Emma, who's very empathetic and very extroverted, would look at me and go, oh no, this is going to be horrible. Dad, I feel terrible about leaving you alone here. This is going to be so hard. And I look at her and say, no, no, Emma, it's not going to be hard at all for me. (laughs) See you in three hours. But it really didn't compute for her that being left alone for an entire evening would somehow feel positive to me. And again, that's because she's an extrovert. And solo is really a no-go for her. She does not gravitate to solo. And when I'm writing a book, uh, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, I've written many books, and over the last 15 years, every book I've written has at least in part been written at this uh, Trappist monastery I go to in the in the mountains of Colorado. And in fact, right now, I just came back, I, I think I mentioned on, on last week's episode that I just came back a little over a week ago from a four-day trip to this monastery where I'm working on daily devotional called the Jesus Center Daily. And it's a 365-day devotional. I have never tackled a project this big, 365 individual <laughs> journeys, individual experiences. So it's going to be a slow go. I'm going to be often in the next uh, six months going off to be alone in utter quiet so that I can not only write, but have focused attention in my relationship with Jesus because I partner with him to write these books. I could not do this without the influence and guidance and relationship that I enjoy with Jesus when I'm alone. So I often go off to this solo space to get what is a basic necessity for me as well. So it's actually perfect for me because I have something creative to apply myself to, but I'm in a space where whenever I feel like I want to stop, I'm in this space where I can be quiet and alone with Jesus and feel recharged and sort of recalibrated in myself. So it gives me time to chew and churn and rest with Jesus as my only companion, and that's really the the common thing, that the, the way that it also connects into what Jesus did, he was alone, but he was alone with his Father and the Spirit when he was alone. He was separated from human contact. That was the big thing that he sought. And so when I go off to this Trappist monastery, I'm separated from human contact, and it creates a different dynamic. It creates a kind of unstimulated life at that point. So you're not having a lot of outside stimulation, and it gives you time and space and energy to have an interior life at that point. So, And in the case of what I need when I'm writing a book, I need a lot of input from Jesus when I'm writing a book. I need sensitivity in my relationship with Him. I need the ability to be guided and to kind of co-create with Him. And in my normal everyday life, it's sort of hard for him to slip in a word or two into my crammed, no-margin life. So to retreat into a solo experience is to give space for a different kind of relationship with Jesus, one that's really as necessary as water and air and shelter is for us. We need the kind of slowed-down, focused, restful space with Jesus in order to grow more intimate with him. So I do, in my life, I do a lot of extroverted things. Um, I'm always with people, and I love being with people, but 
because I'm more of an introvert, the thought of going, for instance, to an extended social gathering is just like, uh, I have to gear up for it. <laughs> I have to get ready for it. And I'm thinking ahead of how I'm going to recover from it once I'm there. So I'm fully engaged, fully energized, really enjoying the people I'm with. And I do that right up until the end of whatever that end point is. And then I crave retreat, restoration from that experience. So again, the solo life is sort of naturally part of my makeup. And I do enjoy my own company. But for many, many people, that solo time feels more like a crawl through the desert. So let's explore Jesus' relationship with solo time, and again, what circumstances surround it, and and maybe how we can follow his lead as we grow more intimate with him. So that's actually the purpose of solo in our life. It's intimacy. This is how we grow more intimate. Now, it doesn't mean it's the only facet that helps us grow in our relationship with Jesus. Serving others, doing things, engaging other people— These are all things that really contribute to our life with Jesus, but there is this one way that Jesus modeled that is uniquely tailored to help us to abide in our relationship with him. And this is something that he highly values and very much wants us to explore more deeply. In John chapter 15, just listen to all of the ways that Jesus is describing the kind of relationship he wants with us. Listen to the words that he uses and the phrases that he uses uh, to describe what his goal is in his relationship with us. He says, starting in verse 4, "'Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch can't produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you can't be fruitful unless you remain in me.'" So already we know this. If we don't learn how to abide— in solo time in our life, to abide in him in quiet and solitude, he's saying you won't be producing much fruit in your life. And I bet you can feel that too, that when you are you feel disconnected and harried and uncentered, maybe is a way of saying it with Jesus, that you also see your capacity to produce fruit in your life is greatly diminished. So this abiding time, this solo time with Jesus, directly leads to the fruit that we have in life, and I've seen this over and over in my life, that if I am going through a season of time when I haven't taken much solo time with Jesus, I'm very aware that the fruit, the the nourishing output of my life and how it impacts others is greatly diminished. And when I've spent seasons of time simply abiding solo and quiet and solitude with Jesus, I have so much more fruit to share with the people in my life. So so already we know that we simply can't produce fruit if we're not abiding in the vine. It doesn't come. And Jesus continues, yes, I'm the vine. I'm the vine. You are the branches, and those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do anything. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. So what's interesting here is that wither is such a descriptive word, and I resonate with it. That's what my soul feels like when I have not recently spent time alone with Jesus. It feels like my soul is withering, and I become more reactive, more fibrillating, I guess is a way of saying it in my personality. And reactive meaning instead of responding to people 
in sort of a centered way, I react to them. I, my emotions are more magnified. I'm not led by out of a place of peace. I'm led out of a place of fibrillation. So here he's describing what it looks like if we don't remain in him. It's going to feel like we're useless. It's going to feel like we're withered inside. That's what he's trying to say. So he says, such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned, and he's really saying that they have no more life in them, there's no more usefulness in them, they, they can't produce fruit. And so it sort of burns up in the end. So the, he continues here, but if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it'll be granted. What a statement. He's saying, if, you're, if you abide in close connection to me, you can ask me anything, and it'll be granted. And why is that? Because your heart and his heart will be overlapping in this place. You will be in a much more sort of shared connection place, and that means that the the desires of your heart are more closely mapped to the desires of his heart. So he's essentially saying, if you're in that place, just ask for anything, because you're going to be sharing my heart in that place. So he continues, when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. So the, the mark of a true disciple is one who abides, is someone whose heart is overlapping with the heart of Jesus, whose natural inclinations are the natural inclinations of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. It's not somebody who's memorized all the right Scripture passages and is, um, has checked off all the boxes of what you're supposed to do to be a good Christian. It's none of those things. He's saying here, the fruit that results from abiding is the true mark of a disciple, because a disciple is one whose heart overlaps with mine. So then he continues, this, this, if this happens, it brings great glory to my Father. He says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me, so remain in my love. And when you obey my, my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. And he's really saying, is when, when we remain in this place of love and uh, close, intimate connection with him, we naturally want to live out the kingdom of God in our life. That's what it means to, quote-unquote, keep his commandments. We naturally live those commandments out by living out the kingdom of God because our heart is so aligned with his. He says in closing here, I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. And I go so far to say is uh, with, um, that if in your life you rarely or never experience solo time with Jesus, where it's quiet, you're in solitude, you're your own best company, that you will not experience joy in your life. He's saying, from this place of abiding emanates joy. And he's saying, I want you to have joy, that's why I'm telling you this. Pattern your life habits after mine. I often went away to be by myself. This is a place where you are filled up and fueled by great joy, and I want you to have that kind of joy. So let's explore a little bit all of the varied circumstances that Jesus retreated into his solo life, and I'm going to try to attach an example from my own life or an example from life in general to each one of these to kind of give you a picture of what this could look like in your own habit patterns. So the first one is that we seek solo time before a major relational challenge. So if you know that you've got a tough thing relationally in front of you, 
whether that's with your spouse or with a friend or with a coworker, that you've got a difficult relational path to navigate here, that we go solo before that. And why? Well, here's this passage from Mark chapter 1, verse 12, that'll be very familiar. <laughs> At once, the Spirit sent Jesus out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. So, of course, Jesus, we all often think about Jesus going into the desert to be tempted, but that temptation happened at the end of those 40 days. So Jesus was 40 days alone in the wilderness prior to an intense relational struggle where he knew that he was going to face the tempter, the one who had first convinced Adam and Eve to turn and betray the good heart of their father. And so here he was going to face himself at a place of great weakness after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He knew he was going to face this really intense struggle. And so prior to that, he spent 40 days alone in the wilderness. We think of it kind of like a, a you know like an extreme challenge, but actually I think he was deepening his abiding in his Father and the Spirit prior to this really challenging experience. And so for me, the way I resonate with this is every single time before I lead people in some kind of growth experience, whether that's the small group that meets in our house every week or just yesterday I led our field test for our youth ministry local training, which is a, a half-day workshop training that's going to be in 40 cities this fall. Put a link to that, too, if you're a youth pastor and you're interested in this year's youth ministry local training. It is—I I can't wait to get on the road with this. It's, I think it's my favorite youth ministry local training we've done in the last five years. So, so I was leading the field test for it, my, sort of my first draft of the experience with about 25 youth workers um, yesterday. And that is time that prior to it happening, I feel a lot of tension inside of, you know, is this going to go well? Because of how I lead things, it's very unpredictable because I lead interactive, conversation-filled kinds of experiences. And the takeaway from those things are always dependent on what people say and do in the experience, and I respond to it. So I always feel this kind of tension rising in me of the unknown of how this is going to go, even though I've done this so many hundreds of times, every time I feel the same thing. And so because I know I'm about to enter into a relational challenge where I'm going to be my person, my essence is going to be really tested in that experience, I go away alone. <laughs> I find a place usually that's dimly lit, dark, where I can close myself off and no one will interrupt me. I can do this no matter where I am. I can always wander and find a place that looks like that. And I spend a minute or two, or maybe three, <laughs> in a posture of dependence. Sometimes I kneel. I always raise my arms and hands up like a little kid would. And I just talk to Jesus. I just get it out with him. I tell him what's going on in my heart. I tell him how dependent I feel on him. I tell him my hopes and dreams for the encounter. I tell him what I'm afraid of. I tell him everything. I just kind of blurt it all out. And 
you may not at all have a situation like I'm describing that's part of my everyday life almost, but you probably have hard conversations. You probably are involved every now and then in some kind of ministry effort at your church or with your friends. You probably have to present sometimes with someone, or you probably have to confront someone every now and then, or you probably have to go to some kind of challenging gathering, whether that's with your family or with your friends or with your workplace. You probably have experienced that relational tension very often. And so what Jesus did prior to this first relational challenge that was at the beginning of his ministry is he went away to be alone to reconnect, recenter, reattach, to just be fully aware of the presence of his Father and the Spirit as he entered into this. And it's a kind of checking in. Before you go into the fray, you check in and allow Jesus to hear everything that's on your heart and to speak back to you whatever he wants you to be thinking about as you head into that. So going solo before a major relational challenge is an important practice. It's an important habit. When you feel that tension as you're about to enter in, find a little alcove, a little place where you can be quiet and just for a few minutes be solo with Jesus. And you might even just simply wait in silence. Put yourself in a posture of submission and dependence and simply wait in silence for him to kind of collect you before you head into this experience. The next one is going solo before your margins evaporate. (laughs) So if you know that you're going to have a day full of back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to challenges, things that you have to do one after the other with very little margin, it's an important thing to have some solo time with Jesus before you head into that marginless experience. So in Mark chapter 1, again, here's what it says. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now at this time, everyone was looking for Jesus. They were seeking him out. But after his time in prayer, where he was solo, he told his disciples it was time for them to move on to another village. So he literally, after his time in prayer, he sensed, I don't we shouldn't stay here any longer. We need to go to another village. We need to disconnect from the people who are sort of crowding in on us right now and go to a new village. So that's what he did right after this. So one of the takeaways for me with this is if I know that I'm about to float my boat into a day full of absolutely no margin, and I go into that without first having a solo experience a solo time with Jesus, then I'm essentially saying I can navigate this with my own strength. I can muscle my way through the decathlon of my life today. So what I do, again, in the moment is I look for a quiet space and a guarded quiet space, I guess is the qualifier there, to sort of reconnect with my true source of strength and energy before I head into that. You have to kind of acquiesce to the fact I'm going to have no margins today. So if if I'm going to get carried through this demanding day, I'm going to need his strength. And the guarded quiet is an important little corollary there. The guarded quiet means that you go to a place where you guarantee the feeling of isolation. So, I mean, sometimes people will go to their own bathroom because you can actually lock the bathroom door. 
And there's something about locking the door or ensuring that no one can interrupt you that is inherent in this part of the passage that we read where it says very early in the morning while it was still dark. What that means to me is when I get up very early in the morning when it's still dark, I know that other people in the house are not going to interrupt me. And that psychologically and emotionally gives me the guaranteed space I need to connect with Jesus prior to my marginless life. In order to face your marginless life, you need no intrusions that would evaporate your margin (laughs) as you begin. So Jesus understood that and modeled it. He guaranteed that he would not be interrupted before he started his uninterrupted day. The next one is to live solo or seek solo after you've had heavy relational demands. So in uh, Luke 5 and in Mark 1, we see an account of sort of the same situation. Jesus is healing people, and he pleads with them that they would keep his miracles, you know, secret, but instead uh, those people couldn't contain it, and they started telling their story of what had happened to them, and the news about him spread all the more, and so that many, many crowds of people were coming to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. And in the context of that, it says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. So here we know that his ability to heal people and set them free from their captivity was extraordinary. It was so miraculous that he quickly grew these enormous crowds following him because they had never seen anything quite like this. And amongst those crowds were always people who were in desperate need. And yet, instead of simply wall-to-wall Jesus healing and releasing people from captivity, his fully humanness drove him to find quiet places where he could be alone, to withdraw, which is a decision to withdraw, to leave, to have a strategy to guarantee that you're alone for portions of this time. Why? Why would he have to do this? It's because these encounters he had, because he's fully human, were very demanding relationally on his heart, soul, mind, and strength. These encounters required his full attention and his successive power going out of him. And so in order to restore himself and to be fully present with these people, he consciously withdrew from them. So you probably have this feeling at work or with your family or your friends or even your church that they all want, want, want something from you. Have you ever had that? been in that place where you start to feel yourself being frustrated or irritated with the people around you because inside that little whispering voice says, somebody always wants something from me? That's at the place that you know, okay, it's time to retreat. It's time to find some solo time because I'm starting to resent the people in my life who all they want is more <laughs> all the time. When you feel that rising up in you, it's a clear indicator, maybe a, you could even call it a red flag, that it's time to withdraw to a lonely place, just as Jesus did, to allow your soul a chance to breathe a little bit. So the next one is to go solo when you need major guidance or recalibration in your life. Here's a couple of little, again, overlapping passages from Luke chapter 6 and Mark chapter 3. Jesus went out 
to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When the morning came, he called his disciples to him. So he went out to a mountain where no one could find him, and he spent the whole night praying. And then when the morning came, he sort of had a sense of what he and his disciples needed to do now that day. So he called his disciples to him and said, okay, gang, here's what we're going to do next. So so he was in need of some major guidance, maybe even some major recalibration, before he directed his followers into their next adventure. So I, I just think about one of my favorite parables that Jesus told that we hardly ever hear in church, and, and I think we did a whole podcast episode on this. It's not even a named parable, but I've given it a name. I've called it the parable of the three loaves of bread. And it's this little story that Jesus tells about a master who's going to bed, and here's this knock on the door late at night, and it's one of his friends who's had some unexpected visitors arrive, and he's yelling outside the door, please get up, I need to borrow some loaves of bread, three loaves of bread, because I've had these unexpected visitors. And the master of the house says, but I'm already in bed. I'm not getting out of bed. Go away. But the friend keeps pounding on the door until the master gets out of bed, opens the door, and gives him the three loaves of bread. And Jesus ends this story by saying, essentially, be shamelessly persistent, just like that guy was. Because in this story, I'm the master of the house. In this story, you are the one pounding on the door. And I'm inviting you to be shamelessly persistent with me. Pound on the door. If you feel like you're getting silence from me, pound on the door. Because I certainly will get up because of your persistence. So I think about this story in relationship to needing major guidance or recalibration, because I often find myself pounding on the door of Jesus, when I feel like I really need his guidance, or I'm feeling like I'm really screwing things up in my relationships. I'm reactive. I'm not handling my relationships the way I want to, so I feel this desperate need for recalibration. I pound on his door. To pound on Jesus' door, you've got to be alone. <laughs> that's At least that's my life experience, that I go away for those times when I need to pound on his door for the three loaves of bread. So when you need major guidance or recalibration, go solo. Also go solo when you need to navigate significant emotional, mental, or even physical challenges. So this is from Matthew chapter 14. When Jesus heard that, you know, John the Baptist had been beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And, uh, Later, now from Mark 14, it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I go away and pray. So in, in both cases, these two things, one, uh, a time of grief when his friend and the on-ramp to the Messiah, John the Baptist, had been beheaded, Jesus was full of grief. So he gets into a boat, and again, to ensure that he could not be interrupted, gets in a boat and goes away to a private place to grieve. So if you have a need to grieve, it's often good to grieve in the company of others, but there's a kind of grieving that we have to do alone. And it's, it's because when we're alone, we tend to invite Jesus into our grief when we're alone. And we really need, when we're grieving something, to invite Jesus into it, because often He's the only one that can inhabit our grief. 
Um, he doesn't fix our grief. He doesn't take away the source of our grief. Somehow he embraces us in the midst of our grief. And in order for that to happen, we simply have to give some separation in our life so that that can happen. And, and, and in the case of Gethsemane, here he's, he's facing great fear in his life. We know that what's about to happen to him is producing incredible pressure inside of him. And he goes with his friends, but then he, he separates himself from his friends to be alone. So he wants them sort of nearby, but he needs to also be alone to have a sense of strength and peace as he heads into this significant emotional challenge. So my challenges, I don't know about you, but my, my challenges almost always produce fear on some level of the continuum. And the, uh, my challenges access my doubts about myself. Uh, am I going to be up for this or not? So I have a desperate need to be centered as I enter into those challenges. My, my wife, Bev, just met recently with a friend who uh, had been, uh, I guess you could call it sort of evasive. There's something going on that this friend didn't want to reveal, didn't want to share, and it was affecting their relationship. And Bev didn't know what was going on there, but she had to face this decision. What sort of risk, how much am I going to risk to find out what's going on there? Will I risk my friendship if I go too far to explore this? What should I do? And she had to precede this time where she was going to encounter this difficult decision of how much to risk in this relationship. She had to precede that by being alone with Jesus so that she could feel like she had solid ground under her feet as she walked into this, because this is an unpredictable situation. You can't script it. So the only peace you have going into an unscripted encounter is to have solid rock under your feet. And the way you get that is to separate yourself and be solo. Another way, another time we crave solo time is when we need to rest and recapture our margin. Here's a little passage from Mark chapter 6. Because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So here Jesus is not just withdrawing himself, he's inviting his disciples to withdraw. Why? What was the context? Well, they'd had no margin. They couldn't even eat a meal. They were so busy. And Jesus sensed, we can't keep going like this. We need to withdraw. Human beings are not created to live in a marginless existence. We know this is true because we know that we are created in the image of God, and God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-everything, chooses to practice Sabbath, rest, seasons of rest. Why would God, who has unending resource, choose to rest in the midst of that? It's because the kingdom of God and those who live in the kingdom of God are created to live in sort of a rhythmic way that includes little Sabbath rests along the way. So Jesus knew that if he didn't get his disciples away to a quiet place where they could rest, that they would cease to be helpful, nourishing, even functional with the people who most needed them. It's almost like when you're on an airplane and the stewardess tells you, if you get into trouble, put your oxygen mask on first before you help the one that you care even more about than yourself. But you won't be able to help that person unless you put your oxygen mask on first. 
and that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Uh, we won't be able to help people if we don't first get margin for ourselves. So, you know, the, the bottom line here is that even Jesus can't live a marginless life, and he showed us that over and over again. So we are wired to live with a Sabbath mentality, and when we act as though we don't need Sabbath or we won't prioritize Sabbath, we'll quickly see the enormous drop-off of our good impact in people's lives. We also go solo when we need to process significant interactions or experiences that we've had. So here's a couple of uh, the same reference, but from two different Gospels, Matthew 14 and also Mark chapter 6. So after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, and when evening came, he was still there alone. He had had this very active, demanding time of ministry, and he knew because of the significant interactions and experiences he had just had that he needed to go solo. And, and for me, every week after I lead this group of 20 young people in our small group, it is a highly engaged, very focused, creative, dependent, vigorous two hours. And at the end of that time, um, if I was maybe if I was an extrovert, I'd want even more of that. <laughs> I'd go out in the kitchen and 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 just do small talk and chat for another hour. But for me, in order to give what I give in that situation, which is my full attention, my ridiculous attention to both them and the spirit, I need to do a little manual labor. So I clean up our house. I put the chairs back. I I uh, take the dog for a walk. I do all this sort of menial task that is designed to serve, but also to give my soul and heart and mind and strength a little bit of space from the intensity of the interaction. So I give my, I just simply give my soul a break from that intensity. And that is what allows me to be fully present. In fact, the promise that on the other side of this experience, I'm going to be alone for a while, gives me the stamina that I need to be fully present for that entire time. So so if you know you're heading into a time of significant interaction or experience, you might also plot out in your head, how am I going to find some time alone after this to chew, recalibrate, uh, really allow, a after Jesus was in the desert for those 40 days and faced the demanding interaction he had with Satan, it says that angels came and ministered to him. So Jesus needed that. He needed the restoration of the kingdom of God in his life after that significant interaction, and so do we. we. We need the same thing. The last one is, it's kind of a funny one, um, but I, I love this one. I just call it solo kinetic, and this comes from John chapter 7. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private. And if you remember, this is the, the scene where... Um, Jesus' brothers, who were skeptical of his ridiculous claims that he was the Messiah, um, were sort of goading him into going back up to Jerusalem, where he had just escaped being stoned to death. They were kind of goading him to go back there to see if he'd be uh, attacked again. His brothers weren't so brotherly early on. And Jesus tells them, no, I'm not going to go up there. And then his brothers take off to leave, and then Jesus decides, I'm going to go anyway. But he goes up solo. And actually, if you calculate how far it is from where he was in Galilee to Jerusalem, it's 90 miles. 
So Jesus walked this 90 miles alone. It was really five days of solitude, walking up to the festival in Jerusalem. Five days on the road walking. And there's something about this that I just absolutely love, that there's a kind of solitude, there's a kind of soloness we experience that is very physical. And that's because our bodies are integral to our spiritual life. Movement in our body can produce movement in our relationships and in our insight and in our sense of identity. And as Jesus is going up into this very sort of dangerous experience that he's headed into, he decides he wants to walk alone for those five days. And by the time he gets to Jerusalem, he knows what he's about. He has a a real sense of what he's to do and what challenges he's facing and what he's going to say and do there. So his kinetic experience of solitude is what fuels this. And in my own life, I have my own kinetic experiences of solitude, just walking or hiking or riding a bike alone gives you a chance. Your body sort of helps to recalibrate the rhythms of your soul when your body is moving. So you might be a person who is best wired to be solo kinetic, that the best solo times you can have are when you're kinetic, when your body is moving. There's a reason for that. Your body can help you to become re-centered to Jesus. And when your body's moving, and maybe even being stressed physically, It's a little hard to have the quiet, whispering, conversational, abiding relationship with Jesus. But I found that even when I'm very physically active but alone, if I put myself in a posture of reception and invitation, I get a lot of guidance and nurture and encouragement from Jesus. It just comes into my kinetic time. And so I enter into those kinetic times with a a real posture of openness and invitation. So... What can we learn about, in a practical way, what it means to go solo? Well, three different ways here. You can have micro-solo moments where you just dip into your bathroom and lock the door, go down to the basement. I would recommend you keep the lights dim. Just take away as much outside stimulus as you can, including the outside stimulus of people. So go in a bathroom, a basement, behind a locked door, go on a short walk if you need to where you won't be interrupted. When you're in these micro moments, from two, three, four minutes uh, at the most, what happens for me is I do a lot of blunt talking <laughs> to Jesus and some deep breathing. I just try to breathe. I slow down my breathing. I try to recalibrate the RPMs in these brief little times. We've also produced, um, and we'll, we'll link to this on the, this podcast episode, a guide for a one-day retreat and a more extended retreat. And We did this a few years ago, and I think we mentioned it on a recent podcast as well, but I just tried to put together some quick ideas that would help you go on a a bit more of an extended solo time, either one day or three days or more. So just we'll put this as as a link on the podcast page, but just to give you kind of a high-altitude version of this, when I go on one-day or more extended-day retreats, personal solo experiences— I always bring something to play music on. Music is always part of my experiences. Music is the one outside stimulus that I really enjoy as a companion when I'm uh, going solo. I also have long stretches of silence, which is also important, but um, I choose uh, music to bring with me that are nurturing 
restful and even uh, stimulating for me. So I, I love to bring some contemplative instrumental and some old school jazz, and I like some indie rock and what I might call sort of singer-songwriter music. I listen to a lot of that. I listen to a lot of Andrew Peterson when I'm on a solo retreat, just because he's a narrative songwriter, and I love listening to story songs when I'm on a personal retreat. It gives my heart and mind something to chew on. So I also bring eclectic reading material, usually sort of a serious book, and then some lighthearted diversionary kind of books, including comic books. <laughs> I bring those with me just to give my soul a break. And of course, I bring a Bible, you know, my Jesus-centered Bible, but I also bring usually a copy of Eugene Peterson's The Message to give myself another option. I bring, uh, you know, layered clothing, clothing that's flexible. For me, going on a solo experience is all about flexibility. I don't worry about overpacking for these things. I want to give myself as many options as I can because I'm trying to reduce stress from this experience. So I bring lots of different kind of clothing so that I have whatever I need depending on whatever I decide to do. So often I, I make sure that I bring along the things I'll need for a hike because I usually go on my experiences in the mountains. So, And I usually bring something that I can, a pen or a little pad of paper that I can bring with me if I go on a hike so that I can write down anything that I want to remember that Jesus might reveal to me during that time. And uh, when I go on these experiences, I always look for a new experience. I don't want to get into a rut when I go on these experiences. It's real easy to default to a rut. So I, I look for new things, new experiences that I can try, new places I can walk to. I always incorporate something I've never done before on each retreat. And so I also give myself permission to not follow a strategy, a regimen, or a performance expectation on it. I just let myself do whatever I'm inclined to do when I'm inclined to do it. So I just give myself permission to do that. And it's so important. You can't usually do that in everyday life because other people are depending on you, and your actions have consequences for other people. But when you're solo, they don't. The only person having an impact from what you choose to do is you. So you need that freedom to choose whatever it is you want to do and have a readiness to sort of embrace and pursue silence during that time. Don't be afraid to be silent. In fact, if you're not silent for some stretch of time, then I think you're running away from something. On longer extended stays, food becomes a bigger issue. I, <laughs> I go to embarrassing lengths to make sure that I have all the different kinds of foods that I really love. And I give myself lots of flexibility, but I plan basically this, this last time I had three nights away. So I planned three dinners that are my three favorite dinners and I brought them with me. So I'd have this thing to look forward to at the end of the day, every day, one of my favorite meals. So food's a big deal. I'd bring along all the, the things that you really love and bring more than you need so that you have flexibility. I also almost always on an extended solo retreat, bring films with me. And again, I bring way more than I'm going to watch so that I can choose whatever I want to choose whenever I want to choose it. If I'm in the mood for something funny and lighthearted, I have it. If I'm in the mood for something more adventurous, I have it. So uh, this last time I brought 10 films with me and I watched two, but it gave me the freedom to choose whatever I was in the mood for at the time. And again, I, uh, because I go on uh, these extended stays in the mountains, I bring hiking gear with me, and I always bring my laptop with me because part of my creative interaction and engagement with Jesus is writing, so I make sure that 
Uh, my laptop is there not to do work, but to create together with him. So I always have writing as a part of my retreats. Now, that could be something different for you. Whatever gives you creative satisfaction in your life, bring it with you so that you have moments of time when you're enjoyably working <laughs> during this retreat, so that your restful times mean even more to you. And I also bring, during my meals, since I'm solo, I bring usually the living section of our newspaper, the lighthearted feature stories in the comics page, so that while I'm eating, I have this break from the intensity of my other aspects of that retreat. Um, I can kind of let off a little steam and just read some lighthearted stuff while I'm reading. So I always bring the living section of my newspaper with me, a bunch of those that I've saved up for that time. And I, I just bring things that are easy to forget, like a flashlight and alarm clock or corkscrew if you're going to bring a bottle of wine. Uh, I try to remember those little things that relieve the stress while I'm there, that I know that if I want it, I have it. So there you have it. We'll put that link to this little retreat guide on this episode of the podcast, and you can download and print that out if you'd like. So there you have it, gang. Living the solo life. It's a life that's fully human when you retreat into solitude and quiet the way Jesus did. By the way, if you're on the Pigs page, which is our private Facebook group for people who love this podcast and want to be community with other listeners, we'll put a link to that Pigs page on our podcast section as well on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. You can go there and ask to be invited into the page. If you're on the page already or would like to be invited into it, I'd love to hear your own practices of going solo. So post them on there so that we can enjoy your experience. If there's certain things you like to do to get solo time or there's certain strategies you have for solo time, go on the page and uh, share them so that we can all grow together. Again, this is paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com at season four, episode 19. Don't forget to check out our podcast page for the links to everything I've mentioned today. This is a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. 